So what's wrong with this world? I think if we're really honest, I mean, the last several months have just kind of said it all with this corona crazy that we've been in and with just the politics and like, oh man, it's just, it's just all crazy in the, in the chaos that we've been in. And so we took a few months, uh, uh, two weeks rather in the summer. Actually, that's not true. Summer is just starting. It's been summer since like March. It's been so weird. It's felt like summer for so long. But in the spring, we, we looked at back and talked about having confidence in the chaos. And man, it's so true that there is, our world is just so chaotic. And if we stop just for a minute and just think about what is like going on around us with corruption, with politics, between oppression, between racism, between media that you're like, I can't even trust what's being said. You have drug cartels, you have drug addiction, you have terrorism, you have rights that are being violated. You have so little justice that's actually happening in this world. You have, you have continents like Africa that are so rich in resources and yet so full of poverty. And that's true of so much of this planet. And you look around and you just think, well, why is that? Why is the world so messed up? Why is it so broken? And maybe you can't get your head around on a like global scale, but maybe you can relate to it on a more personal level. And maybe you could ask yourself, well, why is it that I struggle with depression? Or why do I struggle with anger or with pride or with anxiety? or with different temptations. Why? Why is it that I feel my heart that's just like drawn like a moth to the fire? Why, why are we like that? Or maybe you've experienced some serious loss in your life. And, and maybe, you know, today's Father's Day, and it's always so funny, like when you're talking about Father's and Mother's Day, because because you want to celebrate, and yet the reality is that it, that can be a painful day. For maybe some of you in this room that you wish you were a father, and, and, and you're not. And you wish today you could celebrate Father's Day, and, and you long someday that you'll be able to. Or maybe you are a father, and that's been a very painful experience for you. And, and so a day like Father's Day may come as a bittersweet for some of us. And and so the reality is that this world can have so many disappointments or frustrations or just pain. And let alone if you've ever lost a loved one that is no longer with you and that you just really miss. And you wonder, well, why? Why did he or she have to die? Like, this may feel kind of heavy, but I'm just keeping it real. Like, we live in a world that is broken and when you begin to ponder these things, we're talking about a worldview. These are belief questions. These kinds of questions that we're asking get to the heart of what you believe reality is and what the nature of reality is. Questions like, why am I here? So questions of like purpose or, or, or why, or after I die, what happens? Well, that's questions of like destiny or of eternity. Or who defines what's right? So these questions of like morality, 
Like, these are all important questions that we all ask. And even things like origin. We talked about that a couple weeks ago with creation. But how did we even get here in the first place? Like, these kinds of questions are important for us to grapple with because all of us, at one point or another, are going to come face to face with these realities. And the Bible is the only place that you're going to find the answers. You can look to human reason, you can look to science, but there are limits. What we need is not human reason, but God's revelation. We need the revelation of God to define reality for us, to explain origin and purpose and destiny and morality. We need God to define it for us because he is the creator and the sustainer and the redeemer. And so we're looking to God's word. And so we are now in the middle of a series that will be for the summer, like the actual summer. And this series is basically we're studying biblical theology. So if you haven't been tracking with us the last few weeks, biblical theology is a, a way of studying the Bible, but looking at various different themes, themes that run from Genesis to Revelation, from the beginning of time to the end of time, themes that begin with the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, and that same theme is woven throughout the entire Old Testament, points to Jesus, it's fulfilled by Jesus, and then is carried to the end of time with the new heavens and the new earth at the end of Revelation. And each of these biblical themes is like a thread, a multicolored thread, that when all of these threads are woven together, it creates a stunning tapestry. And so in the video that you just watched, it mentions several of these biblical themes that we're going to be looking at throughout the summer. We looked at creation last week. Well, that's not true. Two weeks ago, we took a break last week for our first week back gathering, but we pick up a series again today. And so now we're in looking at the fall from Genesis chapter 3. This is very important because it describes the purpose of God, which is to display his glory, and the purpose of humanity, which is to reflect the glory of God as his image bearers. And the reason why we're studying this is that I'm praying that it will create a hunger in you to desire to study the word, that that you would see just a glimpse of how stunning God is through his word and that you would just crave him and that you would just go to the word every day and pursue God and then to have your heart just explode with joy and awe about who God is and why he has made you. It's all about redemption through Jesus. So as we looked at Genesis 1 and 2 in creation, and today we look at Genesis 3 in fall. Next week, we'll look at Genesis 4 through 50, which is redemption, and we'll just keep tracking through the Old Testament and looking at these incredible themes. Now, I want to give you a disclaimer here as we're about to dive into Genesis 3. I feel compelled to just say this up front. If you have a watch, I encourage you not to look at it. We will be done before lunch, I promise. Um, I'm mostly kidding about that. 
uh, I would also say if you have something to take notes with, I encourage you to take notes because because this series, the idea is that you would really be a learner because the word disciple, what the word disciple means, it's a lifelong learner and follower of Jesus. That's what it means to be a disciple. And so it means to be a learner. And so I pray that you would come anticipating to hear from God and, and to meet with him today when his spirit in you as you encounter him through his word. And it's a Big topic, and if you've studied this before, you might think, oh, Pastor Matthew missed this or didn't mention that. Well, then you can try better next time when you preach because it's, it's a really big subject, and I spend many hours this week pouring over and praying and, and reading the word over and over and saying, okay, God, how can I feed your people to the best of my ability, as flawed as I am? And so let's jump in to looking at the fall. So creation is the first key word in the Bible storyline, creation, and then fall, continuing in the Bible storyline. So let's begin with asking questions. We're going to ask four questions today as you track through this and understand what it means that the world is fallen. So question number one is, how did God's good creation fall? So if we looked at last time that God created the world good, so today we're looking at how it fell. So how? How did that happen? How exactly did God's good creation fall? Well, the story of fall begins in Genesis actually with paradise. So God made Adam and Eve and placed them in the Garden of Eden. And the word Eden means delight. And it was a delight because it was perfect. And they were in God's presence and they loved each other. And I love what it says in Genesis 1.31. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Not just good, it was very good. God gave them everything. God gave them a perfect home with perfect weather. There was food to eat that was nutritious and that tasted good. They, they had meaningful work to do that was satisfying to them. And, and yes, there was work to be done. Adam was told to work the garden, but it didn't feel like work. It, it wasn't toil or burdensome. His body was perfect. His, his wife was perfect. And everything about their relationship was, was perfect. And it, it was literally heaven. This is this is a picture of paradise that you see in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And most of all, God gave them himself. God gave them his presence. Because it says in Genesis 3, 8, it says it described how God would walk in the cool of the evening. So if you just picture this, Adam is given a wife to love, a job to do, and it was all meaningful and satisfying and wonderful. And then at the end of the day, God would come and walk with him and talk and say, Hey, Adam, how was your day? And I think it's funny how people who aren't married and think of marriage as being some sort of a prison and say, so you get home, and, and you have to talk about your day, the day that you had to endure. You go home, yeah, and your wife says, so how was your day? And you're like, oh, it's horrible. No, it's not. It is a 
joy and it is a privilege to have people that actually care about you to ask you about your day. It's a blessing. And that's the picture that you have here with God in the evening, walking with them, talking with them, just enjoying them. This is bliss. God who created the world speaking to Adam and Eve. There was no disease. So those of you that are physicians or nurses, I'm so sorry. That job did not exist in the garden because no one would ever get sick. Um, For those of you maybe that love law, there were no attorneys because there was no litigation because there was no conflict. There were no cemeteries because there was no death. There were no counselors because we didn't need soul care. You have God walking in the garden. That's sufficient. Everything that we understand in this world, it's like this world. It's still this earth, but without sin. It was absolutely delightful. It was Eden. It was no betrayal, no conflict, no depression, no anxiety, no fear, no anger, no shame, no guilt. It was perfect. But God is a good father. And like any good father, he did put limits on his children. And so Adam and Eve were dependent on God before there was the fall, before there was sin. Because to be human is to be dependent on God. It's not as though they were dependent on God only after they sinned. Because if you go back to Genesis 1, when God created Adam and Eve, the very first thing God did, it says in God, blessed them. God gave them his grace. And so grace is quite simply when you receive favor, receive the blessing that you don't deserve. So Adam and Eve did not deserve God's blessing. God just gave it to them. There's a word for that. It's called grace. So you already had the grace of God sustaining them from creation. And everything with the garden was good and true and beautiful because God is good and true and beautiful. But you also see when God put limits on his son and daughter, it shows his wisdom, his authority. This is important. It shows that he is all wise and that he is in charge. It shows his wisdom and his authority and also shows his sovereignty. And so when you use that big word, sovereign or the sovereignty of God, all that word means is is the king. So a sovereign is the king. And so when you have a, a sovereign nation, what that means is that that nation can govern themselves. And so U.S. is a sovereign nation. No other country should be able to govern. We govern ourselves. And so to be sovereign means that you're autonomous, that you're independent, and that you are self-governing, that you can rule yourself, that you are the king. And so Jesus, God, the Spirit, God is sovereign. He is independent, autonomous, and he is the ruler of everything. So he is the Sovereign, And you see that when he gives his children limits for their own good. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded, so he didn't suggest. He commanded 
the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So God is saying there are limits, there are some restrictions. And so presumably the day would come when they would be allowed to eat of other trees in the garden, such as this one, or even tree of life that you see mentioned in chapter 3. But they weren't ready for that. And so there is, just like with your children, you, you don't let them watch movies or read books. It's not appropriate for them at that age. You, you don't let your child drive a car that isn't old enough and legally can drive a car. There has to be growth and development where then you are given more responsibility. Adam and Eve were perfect, but they still had to grow and learn to trust their God. And so at, what we do know from the Bible that's clear is that God said, no, trust me, you're not going to eat of that tree. And the other tree in the garden, the tree of life, they hadn't eaten from that one either. We'll get to that in a few minutes. So there were limits put upon the children of God. And then if you go to chapter 3, verse 1, we read the first few verses. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. So she corrects him. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. And then she adds this, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Remember, God didn't actually mention that part. He just said, don't eat of it. She adds, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. What's amazing to me here is that Adam was right there. He was right there with his woman, and he's watching this whole thing unfold, and he does not take dominion like he was supposed to. What Adam should have done was said, wait, stop right there. Stop messing with my woman. That's what he should have done. And she would have said, you are a serpent, and I have dominion over all things that are created. And Adam should have grabbed the serpent by the head and thrown it down and crushed the head of that serpent. Would have ended all evil from ever coming into this world. That is what should have happened. And yet Adam, like unfortunately most men, including yours truly, he was checked out. He wasn't there to lead his wife. He didn't do what he was supposed to do. He gave up his right to rule. 
he was not the man that he was supposed to be. And so what do you see here unfolding? Well, you see this serpent. Now, we don't, we don't know exactly when Satan was created. Now, we do know that in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, God said that he created all the heavens and the earth. And so before Genesis 1, 1, nothing existed. Only the Trinity existed. That would include there was no heaven. There were no angels. Nothing existed except God alone. And so he chose to create, and he did create heaven, and he did create, because it even says here, a serpent was more crafty than all the other creatures that God made. And so clearly, Satan, Lucifer, the devil, whatever title you want to give to him, is a created being, not infinite. This is not like the Eastern yin and yang. No, Satan is not an equal of God. He is a created being. We do know from Isaiah 14, if you're curious, verses 12 through 14, also Ezekiel 28, verses 14 through 18, describe the fall of this cherubim named Lucifer, who the word just means shining one, and he fell. He rebelled against God. And Luke 10, verse 18, Jesus says that he saw the day. He was there on the day when Satan fell, was thrown from heaven down to the earth. And if you go to Revelation 12, it describes again how he was thrown down from earth and how he wants to then kill the son that was promised to come, which we'll get to that in a minute. But what you see here is Satan is a created being who rebelled, and Revelation 12 also describes how he took one-third of all the other angels and convinced them. And so today we talk about demons. A demon is an angel that has fallen, that has followed Satan. And so you, you do have demons. They are real. They are as real as angels are, but they're fallen. They have followed their leader, Satan. So at some point before Adam came on this scene, we don't know exactly when in the storyline God created him or when this, this cosmic rebellion happened in heaven. But when Adam is in the garden, you see evil already exists. Now, Adam is not evil. Our world is not evil. But evil does exist. And the originator of that evil is Satan. Yes, we believe this. And if you're thinking, you really believe all that? Yes, I do, because it's in the Bible. We affirm this. And it's not fairy tales. It's, it's not Aesop's fables. We believe this. This defines reality, because it's what the Word tells us. And so Satan fell, and this evil comes in, and Adam had the, had the calling to defend his woman, to fulfill his calling as the image bearer of God and as the ruler over creation, and he failed. And so then what happens? So Satan then begins to question God's Word. This is very important. This is huge for us. He asks Eve, did God actually say? Does the Bible actually say that? 
Does God really mean that when he puts that in his word? Do, do you really have to follow that? Did God say you can't eat of any tree in the garden? Now, there's a difference, and I'll be very clear here, between asking questions and questioning. So we should ask questions of the Bible. We need to ask questions. How else are you going to learn unless you read the Bible and you ask good interpretation questions on who, what, when, where, why, how? These kinds of questions are critical for Bible study. So I am not saying don't ask questions, but what you see with Satan is not asking questions. He was questioning the authority of God's word. And there's a huge difference between questioning authority versus simply asking questions. So what you see here is he begins to question the authority of God's word. And then there's these steps that take Adam and Eve away from God. In no particular order, because all three could happen in any sequence, but it's the same three steps that you and I take every single day when we just drift away from God. And you see it right here in Genesis chapter 3. This first step towards walking away from God is doubting the goodness of God. That's what you see that, that Satan did. He was causing Eve to doubt the goodness of God. Because she corrects Satan and says, no, God said that we can't eat just not of this one in the middle of the garden. But then she adds that phrase. And we can't even touch it. Like, can you just hear, like, she was annoyed. Like, it got under her skin. She was that rebellious child that you tell them, don't touch it, and they just, mm, they want to touch it. They want to touch the stove or the iron, and you know what? Sometimes let them touch it once, and then they'll pray, won't do it again. But you see it here with Eve. Like, she was so irked at God saying, you can't eat of it that she's exaggerating and showing her frustration. I mean, can you just hear Eve talking with Satan and thinking to herself saying, oh, I know, can you believe God? Ugh, he's just so oppressive. He's so repressive. He has all these rules. Like God is like robbing me of joy. And all I want to do is just eat a fruit. And God says, no, you can't eat it. And so God is like this cosmic killjoy who is trying to keep you from enjoying life. Can you relate? So many people see God this way. Like they see God as though he, he just can't be trusted. And he puts up these boundaries and it's and so Victorian prudish. So antiquated and so unenlightened, like we have become. Doubting the goodness of God. Eve should have said, Satan or serpent, this is God we're talking about here. Like, have you lost your mind? He created everything by just speaking. And you want me to rebel against him? That's, it's not going to end well. Like, it's, it's not going to work out in a happy way. 
Like, this is not going to be good. And besides that, I have this husband. He's amazing. He understands me. He listens to me. He's so attentive, usually. And I have, I have a God who loves me, and he blessed me. Why would I doubt him? Why would I rebel against him? No, you're crazy. Get behind me, Satan. But she didn't. She believed that God could not be trusted and that God was keeping something good. He was holding out on her. So we drift away from God when we doubt his goodness. The next step is a denying the judgment. Again, in no particular order, but these are, these are the, the steps. And so we can doubt his goodness, and we can also deny his judgment. Because in verse 4, the serpent says, you will not surely die. God is lying to you. There are no consequences for disobedience. You can go ahead, do whatever you want. There will not be judgment. No one will know. You won't get caught. You can cover your tracks. You can delete the history. You can do whatever it is that you want to do, and there won't be any consequences. You're fine. Just do what you want to do. Enjoy it, Eve. Stop being so repressed by a God who's keeping good things from you. Doubting that there's judgment. The second that a human being denies the holiness of God, denies the justice and the judgment of God, is the second that we begin to sin with no regard, and it leads to catastrophic results. Look around our world and see how we don't believe that there is any judgment. It draws us far from God. God is alone, the one who defines what is good and what is holy. He is the authority. He is the plumb line. He defines morality. What is right? The character of God. He is right and good and holy. He doesn't just tell us what is right. He is the standard. Which is why we're made in his image to reflect that. He is the source. We are simply the reflector. But if you deny that he is a sovereign, if you deny that he has the authority, if you deny that, no, there's no judgment. Oh, man. You think that you're free from God. You, you put yourself as sovereign. You make yourself autonomous and separate from God. And now you are on shifting sand. And your life is headed for going down the toilet. The third step that takes us away from God that we see in Genesis 3 is a desire to be God. So these steps are a doubting the goodness of God. It is a denying the judgment of God. And it is a thirdly here, a desiring to actually be God. Because what you see here is Satan tells her, if you eat of this, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. Did you catch that? You yourself 
can be God. You will have the knowledge of good and evil. Now, in the Hebrew, the, the, the reading here in original language, it's not just like an intellectual knowing. It is having the authority to pronounce, to define good and evil. And so remember Genesis 1, and God said it was good, and God said it was good, and God said it was good. Over and over and over, God, who is autonomous, who is independent, who is the sovereign, who is holy, he has the sole authority to define that is good based upon his own character. And so whenever God has the authority to say this is good, he is pronouncing it good. And so what Eve wanted was that Godhood. Eve wanted the authority to define for herself what is good or evil. She wanted to be Does this sound familiar in our world? I'm okay. You're okay. You can't tell anyone that they're wrong. You can, now it's just so crazy how even like gender, how historically there's been two. There's been male and female. It's not complicated. It is binary. And yet our world says, oh, no, no, there are as many genders as there are people. We all define our own gender for ourselves. And talking to my kids, and it's just so crazy Googling this and how there's this furries, how people identify with animals as though being a human isn't good enough. And now we want this animal gender. I, maybe I'm just too old and I don't get it, but it's a thing. I looked it up, and I was, I was pretty grieved in the process. But we live in a world that says we will define what is good or evil. We will define. We have authority to say you are right, and you are right, and no one is wrong. You see it in the garden. That's where it started. It's not novel. It's not 21st century. It's ancient. It's part of our fallen human nature. And I think it's amazing how you read secular philosophy or secular psychology, because they overlap in this one, and they talk about having an existential crisis, like this big word, existential crisis. And all it means is when people begin to like question whether or not their life has meaning or value or purpose. And so someone's having an existential crisis on why do I exist and what is my purpose? And in most cases, the solution is medicate. Like that's, that's the cure. Like, oh, you need some drugs because you're asking questions about whether you have purpose or value. And so the fact that you're asking those questions means that you, you need to get medicated. No, it doesn't. It means that the Spirit of God has a work in you and you need Jesus. What it means is that you're asking the right questions. These are good questions to ask. Do I have value or purpose or meaning? The answer is yes, you do. And our world says, well, define it for yourself. You define what your purpose is or if you have value or not. It's up to you to define that. But the Bible is so clear in defining it for us. Find what makes you happy and just go for it. You know what that is? That's slavery. 
that is nothing more than bondage to your sin, to Satan, the father of lies, who was a liar from the beginning. What you see here is the essence of evil. You know what it is? Losing your taste for God. What you see with Adam and Eve is they no longer wanted God walking with them in the cool of the evening. They no longer wanted to be image bearers. They no longer wanted to live for the glory of God. It, it didn't taste good to them anymore. Like it tasted bad. They lost their taste for God. And when that happened, it led them down this path of idolatry, of idols. And so how did this good creation fall at its root? Idolatry. Desiring something else more than you desire God himself. And you and I struggle with it every single day. We struggle with idolatry, with with yearning, desiring things more than we desire the very presence of God. And when they ate, when they consummated this desire when they rebelled against the goodness of God. This was treason because Adam was the head of humanity. He wanted to literally overthrow the kingdom of God. And so what happened? He became evil. And now humanity's nature is fallen. So we have a fallen human nature. And all of our sins flow from our hearts that are broken. And on that day, when God told them, on the day you eat, you will die, they did. Their soul died. They spiritually died. And now every single human being that is born is born to this world spiritually dead. And they began to die physically. Now they would age. Now they would get diseases. And one day they would physically die. And so they began the process of dying physically. But even more, they died spiritually. Literally, Satan murdered their souls on that day. And so now our world is fallen. Next question. So how has the fall affected creation? So that's how it fell. Adam, who was the head, sinned. And so now the whole world is fallen. But how has the world been, all creation been affected? Now, I don't have time to read the rest of Genesis 3. I wish I did, but that would be a much, much longer sermon. I encourage you to go and study Genesis 3. I'm going to just summarize it here at this point. God curses the serpent, and then he curses the woman, he curses the man, and then the whole world. He says that the very ground is cursed because of you. God tells Adam. So the whole ground, the whole earth, the whole creation is cursed. It explains why there are thorns. It explains why it's so much hard work to plant and and to see growth. It explains why there's disease, why there's divorce, why there's death, why our world is broken, and why there's so much chaos. It's because this world is cursed. We're under the curse of sin and death. And so life is now filled with sadness and disease and death 
And it's not just out there, it's inside of us. Down to our very core of our being, we are sinful. So in theology, the word or the description for this is called total depravity. And so the word depravity is just a big word that means sinful or, or evil. So to be depraved means to just be evil. And so the word total, it doesn't mean that you're as evil as you could be because there is God's common grace that helps us. But the word total in, in this sense just means complete or whole. And so whole depravity or complete depravity. He's talking about us as holistic beings. So I like to think of it as like holistic corruption. And so what this means is that, for example, our, our bodies are corrupted. We get diseases, we get sicknesses, and eventually we die. Our bodies are affected by the fall. But not just our body, it's also our mind. So our minds are affected, and so we desire to think about things that are not healthy or holy or that bless other people. So we have evil thoughts, but it's not just our body and our mind, it's even our will. So our willpower is weak, and we don't have the power in our will to be holy or to obey God. And so we have our, our mind, our body, our will, down to our soul, our heart is corrupted. So our hearts, they crave evil things for all of us. We're enslaved, mind, body, will, soul, total, complete, depravity, corruption. I know that this is uncommon. Our world says, no, that's not true. Humans are basically good. Really? Have you read the news? Have you been married? Do you have children? I'm just saying, like, I understand that's a whole long sermon, but I believe there is an age of accountability where biblically, again, I can't get into it today, but if you want to talk later, we can, where I do believe biblically that a child at a certain point when they understand their sin, then they're held accountable by God for their sin. Until that, when they're younger, then they're not held accountable for their sin against God. So but even when a child has not yet reached that age where they're accountable, even before that, man, they're selfish. I'm sorry, but even children, even little ones, like the terrible twos, man, it's like terrible threes, terrible fours, terrible fives, terrible sixteens. <laughs> I have a 16-year-old at home and six-year-old. If we're honest with ourselves, we know, we know that we're sinful and we want to deny it, but it's just, it doesn't pass the gut check because God has wired it into us. We know what sin is because we're made to be in his image. It's corrupted now. We are holistically corrupted. We need new hearts. We need a resurrection we can't change our hearts. They're totally depraved. We can't. We have no hope of, of improving ourselves or making ourselves have a passion for Jesus and for his kingdom. And this affects us holistically. And you see it in the garden because before the fall, Adam and Eve enjoyed God. And if you read in chapter 3, it says that they were hiding that's so fascinating. They used to enjoy God, and now they're afraid of him. 
to not there's fear. And God says, where are you? Adam says, I'm afraid. Why are you afraid? Well, because now he's corrupted. And then there was shame. Because in the Hebrew, naked and shame is the same word. And so when they saw that they were naked, they had shame. And why they made fig leaves to cover themselves is just laughable. As though a human being can do anything to cover their shame. We try and we can't. And so there's shame that came into the world, and then there's guilt when God pronounces humanity guilty of treason, and the worst part is exile. Because what you see in Genesis 3 is exile, taken from the garden and thrown out of the garden, out of delight, out of God's presence, out of their purpose, completely exiled, far from God, and joy, and purpose, because God is the source. He is joy. If you cut yourself off from God, what are you going to have? Only death. There's no happiness apart from God. There's no joy or purpose. And so, of course, when they cut themselves off from God, of course, there's death and decay, and evil runs rampant, because that's all there is apart from the grace and the holiness of God. There was no way back in the garden except through a flaming sword that God placed a sign of his judgment saying, you have sinned, and so you're out. I cannot be in the presence of you anymore, Adam and Eve, because now you are sinful. God is holy. God cannot be in the presence of sin. It will go against his nature. And so you see judgment with God exiling them out of the garden, and yet you also see mercy. Let's talk about that. Third question, how is God restoring his good creation? How is he restoring it? Because God did not give up on his creation. He shows mercy. How does he do that? Well, first of all, he showed mercy because he did not allow them to eat of the tree of life. If they had, then they would have had eternal life in their corrupted state. And so God, being merciful, did not allow them to eat the tree of life. And he shows mercy by killing an animal. You see mercy throughout the entire Old Testament, and it begins right here with the Garden of Eden. He kills the animal. This is a sacrifice to cover their shame. This points to the Messiah who would be our sacrifice, the Lamb of God who would take away our shame. Cain then kills his brother Abel. Lamech then murders because the guy just injured him. And then after all this great evil, you see that he restarts the world with Noah. Again, mercy. And yet there are still evil and evil hearts. So God, God starts with, with Noah, all new people. And then what happens? They want to then build this big tower to rob God of his glory. So what does God do? He separates them. He scatters them at the Tower of Babel so that they would then scatter in the earth and you see more exile. Humans exile from God and from each other. What does God do? He shows mercy and he gathers a people together through Abraham. Look at him in more detail next week. And through Abraham, he promises through you, I will one day bring a savior. 
And all of these promises all come from Genesis chapter 3, 15. That's where it all began. Let me read to you Genesis 3, 15. In the garden, God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is a veiled reference, but this is called the first gospel. If you want the big word, is a proto-evangelium, but that just means first gospel. That's what that means. It's a veiled reference. It's pointing to the Messiah. It says that he will crush the head of the serpent. Yes, he's going to get bit on his heel, so it's going to hurt. He's going to suffer, but it's not fatal. Jesus, who would die but be resurrected, but he crushed the head of the serpent. And then he promises through Abraham, one of your descendants will be that Messiah. And the whole family ends up enslaved in Egypt. And what does God do? He's merciful and he rescues them from slavery. And what do they do? They prefer idols. They build a calf. They worship a cow instead of God. So what does God do? He shows them mercy and raises Joshua to lead them back into the promised land and defeat the enemy. God is so merciful. And what what do they do? They worship idols in the promised land. So they don't repent. God sends prophets. They don't repent. So God then exiles them to Babylon. And what does he do? He shows mercy and brings them back home and restores them to their land and rebuilds the temple. And what do they do? They pursued more idols. It's this incredible cycle throughout the whole Old Testament of God shows mercy and his people prefer idols, and God shows mercy, and they prefer idols over and over. That's the whole Old Testament. It is unbelievable. It's a mirror. Look in it. See yourself. This is the story of our life. You see, grace was always present. And grace is undeserved favor. Mercy is different. Mercy is undeserved favor when you deserve judgment. Mercy goes a step past grace. Because we've always had God's grace from the garden. Now through Jesus, we have mercy. We deserve judgment and instead we receive his blessing. It's all about giving us new hearts. Jesus is reversing the effects of the fall. Galatians 3.13 describes that he became a curse for us, for it is written, curses everyone that hangs on a tree. He endured our curse to roll back, to push back the effects of the fall by taking our shame and our guilt on himself. The path back to the garden is the path through the judgment of God. The only way for us to go back into delight, into God's presence, into the garden, is to follow the new Adam who went through this flaming sword known as the cross, enduring the judgment, and therefore opening up the doors and allowing us to enter in 
Do you understand? Have you ever reached the end of yourself when you're like the prodigal son who is in the pigsty and then finally comes to his senses and says, I'm going home. I'm done. I'm done living this way. I was not made for the pigsty. I was made for my father's home. And the path home is following the new Adam through the cross where he was the perfect lamb of God who took away our sin and has crushed the head of the serpent. We had to feed our souls from God's word and receive his mercy. Because if we don't, what will happen is we become uh, people that are very envious of other people because we don't remember how much God has been merciful to us. Or you may get arrogant and look down at other people because you don't know the mercy God has given to you. You become judgmental because you forget how much mercy you have received. You stop being real with people. Man, we need to be a church that's just real with each other. Just honest. We all are sinners that are desperate for the mercy of God. And only because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus do we have this mercy. And we have access back, and we're being led right back into the garden. This will change you. This defines you. Nothing else does. As we wrap up, I've gone long. I appreciate your patience. How does all of this really impact your life? Last question. How does this truthfully impact your life today? Let me give you three quick thoughts, points to ponder as we wrap up. One is that renewal really is possible. This is not just Sunday morning preacher talk, religious mumbo-jumbo, or you might think, oh, that's just like self-help. No, this is real transformation through the real Son of God, through His Spirit. He changes lives. I've seen mine change, and I've seen many others change, and God can change yours. Renewal is possible. Real change, real transformation is possible, only through Jesus. Next, I'll say that renewal comes when you repent. Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 were denying, and Adam blamed his wife, and his wife blamed the serpent. And so when we're blaming and, and shifting the blame and minimizing our pain or our problems or just denying our sin, you will not experience God's renewal. But when we are real, when we're honest, when we're real, man, God just rains down more of his mercy and renews us. And lastly, renewal is meant to be shared. That's the point. You've received mercy for the mission. That's why. It's not just for you. It's for those that are far from God. Will you find your place in the story that God is sharing?